Welcome to the Gospel Addict Podcast. I'm Greg Bryan. And I'm Jim Reske. We're gospel addicts because we believe the gospel of Jesus isn't just good news, it's the best news ever. We're addicted to the gospel because it doesn't just start us out in the Christian life, it is the Christian life. Join us as we look at the Bible through the lens of the gospel. Thanks so much for listening. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you give us the wisdom to perceive you, the intelligence to understand you, the diligence to seek you, the patience to wait for you, eyes to see you, and a heart to meditate on you. And I pray that you give us a life that will proclaim you. And we pray this in the power of the Holy Spirit and in Jesus' name, amen. That's actually a prayer from St. Benedict, if you're wondering. Great prayer. Well, our study begins with the fourth of four important therefores in the book of Romans. And as you know, we've talked about this, when you come across the word therefore, when you're reading the Bible, you want to find out, say it, what it's there for. Exactly. So in, in to kind of review and get us up to where we're at, the first one, significant therefore, is found in chapter 3, verse 20. This is where Paul says, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. We can refer to this as the therefore of condemnation because it reminds us that every human being is guilty before God. And that if we got what we deserved, none of us would spend eternity with God. We would be eternally separated from him. But since the time of Adam and Eve, humans have tried to justify themselves by works. Even in the Garden of Eden, Adam tried to make himself presentable to God by making coverings out of fig leaves. And he failed. In Job, the oldest book of the Bible, the problem is presented clearly. In Job 9, verse 2, how can a man be righteous before God? That's the question. How can a man be righteous before God? God makes part of the answer clear through Paul. The answer is not in the performance of good works or in keeping the works of the law. So when you think about on a macro level, what is the biggest problem in the world? It's one of the questions I like to ask students when I'm trying to get them engaged in spiritual conversations. What do you think the biggest problem in the world? The Bible says it's sin. And the fact that every human being is a sinner and guilty before God. And Paul makes it clear, it's impossible for us to save ourselves. Now, that's the really bad news of the gospel. But the second, therefore, in the book of Romans presents some pretty good news. And that's in chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's some of the best news ever. 
We can refer to this as the therefore of justification. In Romans chapter 3, verse 5, Paul explains what God did to redeem human beings. He sent his son, Jesus, to live the life that we were meant to live, a life without sin, and to die the death that we deserve to die on the cross for our sins as our substitute. So that when we place our faith in Jesus, we might have peace with God and a restored relationship with him. That's great news. It's like the best news ever. That's why we call it the gospel. Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The therefore of justification declares a profound truth that those who trust in Christ alone are treated as if they never sinned. Jesus took our sin upon himself and paid the price that we deserve by dying on the cross. And then he gives us in exchange his righteousness. We often refer to this as the great exchange. When I was in seminary, I remember one, my professor saying, you know, the word justification, think of it in this way, just as if you never sinned, just as if you never sinned. That's how God sees us if we're in Christ. But that's not all. There's a third, therefore. The next, therefore, comes in chapter 8, verse 1, which Jim talked about last week. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Powerful verse. This, therefore, was written in the context of Romans 7, where Paul is not dealing with salvation in the chapter 7, but he's dealing with the problem of how believers can do anything good when we have such a sinful nature? How can a holy God ever accept anything that we do when we have, quote, no good thing living in us, as Paul writes in Romans 7? It would seem that he would have to condemn every thought and deed, but this verse tells us there's no condemnation because of the indwelling Holy Spirit that fulfills the righteousness of the law in us. And we receive this declaration from God's court, from his courtroom. Though we certainly deserve condemnation, we receive this standing because Jesus bore the condemnation we deserved. And now our identity is found in him. And he is condemned no more, and neither are we. So this talks about our position in Jesus Christ. The basis of this wonderful assurance is the phrase, in Christ Jesus. And it's found all throughout the, the New Testament. In Adam, we were all condemned. But in Christ, there's no condemnation. The verdict is not less condemnation, which is what many tend to believe, that thinking that our standing just has improved in Jesus. Our standing has not just improved a little bit. It has been completely transformed, changed to the status of no condemnation. And that brings us to the fourth, therefore, in the book of Romans, which starts our study this morning, which is in chapter 12, verse 1. And this one might be one of the most important therefores in the Bible. Therefore, Paul says, I urge you. 
Notice he says, I urge you. He doesn't say, I command you. He says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. You know, it's Paul's pattern when he writes, and it's purposeful, that he always starts with a strong doctrinal section, and then he follows that with practical exhortations on Christian living. And they kind of gets the order wrong. Religion is, I obey, therefore I'm accepted by God. I obey God, and then I get accepted. I earn his acceptance. But the gospel is, I'm accepted by God through what Jesus did on the cross, therefore I obey. So that order matters. This is the therefore of consecration, because all these things are true. Think back on the whole book of Romans. Sin, we're all guilty of it. Salvation, Jesus saves sinners. Sanctification, the Holy Spirit changes us from the inside out. In light of all that, the only logical response is to surrender as a form of worship and service to God. You see, we don't serve God in order to receive his mercies. We already have them. We serve out of love and gratitude and appreciation because of his mercy. So I want to just spend a few minutes on these first two verses in chapter 12, because I think they're so important. Understanding them is crucial. So just to reiterate, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And then in verse 2, he goes on and says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So when Paul writes, therefore, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, he's saying something like this. You know, based on all that I've written to you so far, that everyone is bound under sin, that justification is by faith, not by works, that everyone inherits sin through Adam, but in Christ is made alive, that we died and rose with Christ, that sanctification is through the Holy Spirit, that nothing can separate us from the love of God, that, that God is sovereign in all he does, that God has a future plan for Israel in chapters 9 to 11. Based on all of this, I urge you to present your bodies, your entire selves as a living sacrifice to God. So he starts off with the mercies of God. And there are probably dozens and dozens of evidence of mercies of God, but here are just some of them. Consider the mercies of God already told to us in the book of Romans. God credits us righteous apart from, the, from works. God offers justification and redemption. Jesus' sacrifice provides atonement. God takes judgment on himself. God is forbearing and patient with us. Our transgressions are forgiven. Our sins are covered. Our sins are not counted against us. 
God gives spiritual life to the spiritually dead. God makes peace between us and him. God poured out his love into our hearts. He's given us the Holy Spirit. He demonstrated his love for us that while we were still in open rebellion to him, he died for us. He saved us from his wrath. He reconciled us to himself. He gives us eternal life. He provides an overflowing and abundant provision of grace. He's allowed us to die to sin. God gives us a new life. He allows us to bear fruit. He frees us from condemnation. He makes us his children, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. God shares his glory with us. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us. God works for our good. He conforms us into his likeness. He is for us, not against us. God doesn't bring charges against us. He provides his love from which we can never be separated. He saves all who call on him. And then he even allows those who don't even seek him to find him. In light of those mercies, God calls us to be living sacrifices. Now, this whole idea of like living sacrifices, that would have got Paul's readers' attention. But there are two really good examples of living sacrifices in the Bible. The first one is Isaac. Think about Abraham and Isaac. Think about the journey Abraham took with his son Isaac to the place where he was going to make a sacrifice. Isaac willingly put himself on the altar, and he would have died in obedience to God's will. But then the Lord sent a ram to take his place at the last second. So we could say that Isaac died just the same. He died to, to self and willingly yielded himself to the will of God. And when he got off that altar, Isaac was a living sacrifice to the glory of God. Just think about that story. It's amazing Isaac didn't run away when he realized <laughs> what was going on there. Like when he says, hey, Dad, uh, I see we got all the stuff for the, the sacrifice, but where's the sacrifice? It's amazing he just didn't take off and run, isn't it? But he willingly gets off the altar. So that, that, that's an example of a living sacrifice. But the best example and the ultimate example of a living sacrifice is Jesus himself. Because he actually did die as a sacrifice in obedience to the Father's will. But he rose again. And today he's in heaven as a living sacrifice, bearing in his body the wounds of the cross. He's our high priest and our advocate before the throne of God. And we've mentioned this before, but a lot of people say, well, the problem today is like with, with the whole concept of being a living sacrifice is that we keep crawling off the altar. And it's true. We do that. But what does it mean to be a living sacrifice today? Being a living sacrifice means that every day, every hour, every moment, we've got to deliberately, consciously, continually offer ourselves to him. We're not living the Christian life unless we put to death the idea that we have a right to live as we choose. Boy, that's tough for Americans, isn't it? Let me say that again. We're not living the Christian life unless we put to death 
the idea that we have a right to live as we choose. This is the essence of the Christian life. You put to death the right to live as you choose. You put to death the idea that you belong to yourself. You put to death that you know what's best and what should happen in your life. And it feels like a death when you say that to God. When you say to God, God, I know you know what's best and I just trust you. That's a tough thing to say, especially when you're going through some difficult trials and tribulations or when things don't work out the way you think they should work out. It feels like a death, but on the other side of that is life. A living sacrifice leads to life. Listen to this story. It's a true story. Back in the 1930s, and you have to kind of put yourself in that historical context, there was a young girl. She was 15 years old, and she was at a Bible conference. And at this Bible conference, not only did she commit her life to Christ for her salvation, which was awesome, she also made a commitment to serve him on the mission field in Asia, one of the hardest places to be a missionary at that time. And unlike a lot of young people who maybe make a commitment like that and waver, she did not. She stuck to it. In her teen years, she talked to all the different mission agencies. She just gave God her life. She's like, I'm giving you my life, God. The mission agency says, we have two requirements for you. The first is you got to be trained. The second is you got to be married because of how difficult and dangerous it was to serve in Asia at that time. So before she graduated from high school, she sat down, she wrote in her journal. She said, Lord, I take my hands off my life. I give you everything. I don't care about a comfortable life. I don't care about, you know, a safe life. I'm going to give you my whole life. I'm going to live my life as a, in missionary service to you. And I'm going to go through all the training I have to. But there's one thing I need from you. You know what that one thing was? Husband. So off to Bible college, she goes. She got all the training she needed. But on the day of her graduation, after four years, no boyfriend. So she goes, all right. So she goes, I'll get a master's degree. So she goes on, she gets a two years master's degree, but on the day before she graduated, she admits that she was a very angry young woman. She had done everything for God, but God wasn't keeping his end of the bargain. And so she writes this in her journal, and this is where I think it's interesting. She says, God, how could you do this to me? I have nothing else I can do. I have nowhere else to go. I put everything into this and I have no other prospects. I've committed my whole life to you. I took my hands off my life and I asked you for only one thing and you didn't do it. How could you do this to me? Put yourself in her shoes. So she wrestled and struggled that night and then suddenly she came to her senses. She realized that she'd been kidding herself. She realized that she wasn't miserable because she had taken her hands off her life. She was miserable because she had never taken her hands off her life. She realized that she had developed an idea of what a noble life was. That if, if she could live this life, then this is all that matters. 
that she would have value and she'd be a person of worth. She was telling God the kind of life that he had to give her. She realized she was using God, not serving him. She hadn't taken her hands off her life. So finally that night, she takes her hands off her life. I don't know the rest of the story. I don't know if she ended up, you know, yeah, you're all like, what's the rest of the story? But here's the question. The whole point of this story is this. This is the question for today. And this is how it relates to Romans. If that little girl never really took her hands off her life, do you think you have? If she hadn't, and all she went through, all that she did, do you think you have? That's the challenge, right? So this whole idea about being a living sacrifice, this is huge. What keeps us from living out Romans 12.1? Well, the answer is found in Romans 12.2. Probably the world. It says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. I think it's easy for us as believers to think that we're leading when actually we're just following the ways of the world. We must be careful. And let me give you a silly example of this. Imagine if for the next five years in Hollywood, all they promoted were bald actresses. Every woman was bald in every movie. How long do you think it would be till we would see bald women in our churches? How long would it be till, you know, people would start shaving their heads? Probably a lot shorter than you would like to think, right? But we don't realize how the world is trying to press us into its mold. That's what it means to conform to the pattern of the world. It's trying to press us into its mold from the outside in when we're called to be transformed, which is from the inside out. And that's, let's talk about being transformed. The, tra the word for transformed in here is metamorpho. Sound familiar? Yeah, metamorphosis. You think of like a, a tadpole becoming a frog and, you know, a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. Metamorphosis. It's a, it's a radical word. And this is what we're called to, this is the kind of life we're called to live. It's the word that's used of Jesus twice in the gospel when he transfigured in front of Peter, James, and John. It describes a change within. You see, the world wants to change us, change our minds, and so it exerts pressure from the outside, but the Holy Spirit seeks to change us from the inside out. The world wants to control our thinking, and if the world controls our thinking, we're a conformer. But if God controls your thinking, you're a transformer. Every Christian is either a conformer, living for and like the world, or a transformer, daily becoming more and more like Jesus. So this word metamorpho is found in four places in the Bible. Two have already talked about twice in the gospels when Jesus was transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration, but it's also used in second Corinthians three eighteen. 
It says, and we all with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. So how are we transformed? It's not outside in, it's inside out. And I think one of the challenges for us as believers is to continually push the gospel deeper and deeper into our hearts and minds. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day, daily meditating on all that he's done for us, like those mercies that we talked about earlier. Daily thinking about his love for us. And as we push the gospel deeper in our heart, it will grow and grow and change us from the inside out. One of the greatest compliments that a person can give you is when they say that they see a reflection of Jesus in you. And that's what happens when we're transformed. We become more and more like him. We become less, he becomes more. Let me pause here for some comments or questions. All right, first off, you're no Paul Harvey for now, for the rest of the story, okay? Uh, the other thing too is, is and, and I think you've alluded to it in, in passing, is the fact that sometimes when we read scripture, we tend to focalize on a scripture or a section. This letter to the Romans was a whole argument from front to back. And like you've gone through from the beginning, you had the first, first, therefore, the second, the third, and the fourth. But that was the whole argument. And I think sometimes what we should do is get rid of all the chapters and verses and read it straight through. Mm. And you understand that this is a complete argument for who we are in Christ. And I just thought that that was something that sometimes we make that mistake of that we segment it and we miss the bigger picture. Excellent thought, thanks for sharing that. There are Bibles out there where, where they remove the, and that is, it, it actually makes you realize this was a letter. Like when we read it, we're like dissecting it a lot of times. Yeah, Tom. You know, when we pray, we say they will be done. But then you, you, you really, when you're asking for something, are you really saying that will be done? Are you saying, you know, God, your will should be what I believe. Mm. And it, I find it difficult sometimes to pray. I mean, really, all that's necessary is thy will be done and to focus on that. Yeah. Good, good, good thought. I struggle with that, too. I mean, that, that's one of the hardest prayers to pray is not my will, but your will be done. Because if you're like me, you think you know how your life should go and what's best. But, Louis? One of my favorite verses, it was the first verse I ever memorized. It was Matthew 6.33. And it's clear. It says, first seek the kingdom of God, which is the Father, and his righteousness, the Son, and all things will be added to thee. It's good instructions. If we seek him first, we'll have everything that we need. Mm. And there's two verses, promises in Scripture you should talk about. This one says, he's greater than our hearts. And he's also promised us that he's greater than the world. And that gives me comfort. And I rest in knowing that he's overcome our hearts and he's greater than the world. All right, Doug. My question is, or comment, what is, or how do we pursue transformation or metamorphosis? Is that an active part of us? Or is this something that Christ does in us? Do we have to seek it? 
and work at it? Or does this happen naturally? I think it's both. I think we, we have to seek it. I think that's where the spiritual disciplines come in having a daily quiet time, meditating on the scripture. But the thing about it is you can do all that stuff and do it like a religious person, you know, but I like to look at it like this. I don't have to read the Bible. I get to read the Bible. I don't have to go to church. I get to go to church. I don't have to fellowship with other men. I get to fellowship with other men. I don't have to pray. I get to pray to me. It's it's it, the motive of your heart is so important because so often we're operating under like the religion. Like if I do all this, then God will bless me. You know, I got to do all these things. Got to. So it is, it is us. It, we, we have to use our will. That's where, you know, it, it's, it's our minds, our hearts and our will. We've got to surrender our hearts, minds and will to the Lord. And it's a challenge. It's a struggle. Every single day, the world is trying to press you into its mold. And that's why it's so important to daily be in the word and daily be in prayer, to meditate on scripture, to memorize scripture, not because you have to, because you get to, and it changes you from the inside out. And that's where the Holy Spirit, you know, it's us working with the Holy Spirit that is when it gets real magical and it, you begin to realize, man, I'm, I'm changing. I'm not the same person. So let's move on. We're going to have another time for questions and comments. It's so important to keep in mind chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, when you read the rest of the book of Romans. Because if, if you didn't, it can look just like religion. A bunch of commands. This is how you should live. Da, 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 da. But it's all about being transformed. So Paul shows us what a transformed life looks like. It looks like a body that works together and serves one another. It looks like people who actually love and care for one another. It looks like people who bless people that persecute them. It looks like people that don't pay back evil for evil, but instead pay back good for evil. It looks like people that don't covet or steal but love the way Jesus loves, chapter 13. It looks like people who deny themselves in favor of caring for others, in chapter 14 and 15, when we talk about preferences and disputable matters, gray areas. It looks like people who are serving together in ministry, chapter 16. One of the things in chapter 16, there's like 27 names mentioned in chapter 16. And I think sometimes we think the Apostle Paul was like this lone missionary. Like, it was, he, like he was just out there starting churches that, you know, it was all about him. In chapter 16, he recognizes 27 people by name that helped him. Like this was a, a lot of people involved in spreading the gospel. So I came up with a silly illustration. We'll see if it works out. I'm sorry for my graphics. I wish I... I I wish I was a better, better at graphics, but perhaps transformation looks something like this. It begins when we trust Christ for our salvation. It's like, I found Jesus. Yeah, that's great. You know, I don't know if that was your experience, but kind of relates to my experience. But then we begin to see the depth of God's love for us, and the cross begins to become more significant. 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the message of the cross 
is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. But then we continue, and we think about what Jesus has done for us through the cross. It becomes even more prominent in our walk with God. Like John the Baptist said, he must increase and I must decrease. And then Second Peter, Peter wrote, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grow in grace. Grow in grace. What does that mean? I think it means the cross keeps getting bigger and bigger. And then we can say, like the Apostle Paul in Galatians 6.14, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. May I never boast except in the cross. When that happens, everything changes. It affects all our relationships. We can even get along with Christians we disagree with. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Gospel Addict Podcast. Feel free to contact us via email at gospeladdictpodcast at gmail.com. Stay tuned for our next episode. And remember, on your worst days, you're never beyond the reach of God's grace. And on your best days, you're never beyond the need of God's grace. See you next time.